what is going to be the most important scientific discovery of the next 25 years? My answer was, you can have direct brain-to-brain -brain communication. Welcome to the EOUC talk show. Our goal with the show is to introduce you to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today we have a very special guest, Dr. Anthony Leggett. Welcome. Thank you. So what do you do this morning? What did I do this morning? I went into the department and worked there for a couple of hours. And then I went out to look for a coffee, which turned out to be a rather non-trivial operation. Finally found a coffee in the Illini Union and worked on a slightly different topic uh, there while I drank my coffee. And then I decided, although I normally stay at the department until lunchtime, I decided I might just all go home. So I went home and, and put in a bit of work before lunch at home. And what are you working on? Um, what I'm uh, well, I, I have several um, there are several different um, occupations right now. I'm uh, trying to do a, um, a review of some applications to a uh, a um, an institution in in China. Um, so I have to read a, a lot of the uh, applications and try to to somehow evaluate them. Um, I'm, I'm also uh, an a member of the editorial board of Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, I don't know if you know that, it's um, uh, one of the, the sort of fairly prestigious uh, scientific uh, journals in, in the US. Um, so I had to review manuscripts for that and I did a couple of those. Um, and then um, I'm also working on an individual research topic, which is um, a particular uh, metal, um, strontium ruthenate, which becomes superconducting at low enough temperatures. And it's a particularly interesting metal because, um, as you probably know, there's been a, um, a rather interesting proposal over the last 20 years or so to, um, to develop a form of, com of computing uh, called quantum computing. Um, and uh, there's a particular sub-species uh, of quantum computing, which is called topological quantum computing, where you, in some sense, try to bury the information which you would like to keep, but you don't want nature to screw up. So you try to hide it in the many degrees of freedom of a so-called many-body system, that is a system of many atoms or whatever. Um, and uh, so it, it, uh, it's thought that strontium ruthenate, this particular metal, might be a good candidate um, to carry out this kind of operation. However, there have been uh, various experiments over the last 20 years and they don't seem to be mutually consistent as far as we can see, or rather they're not mutually consistent within, within the existing theoretical ideas concerning this metal. So I'm trying to sort that out in one sense or another, theoretically. 
very interesting. Uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm curious. So let's say that you went back in time and, well, maybe not went back in time, but let's say that you are an undergrad right now at this university. Yeah. What would you study and what problems would you work on? Well, I think um, I would choose as a general field of study. I would not, I'd probably not choose physics, I think. I would more likely choose um, experimental neuroscience or neuropsychology. Um, now, which problems I would work on, uh, I couldn't really say until I've got into it properly, <laughs> but, uh, but something to do with the, the way the brain operates, the th sort of things that can go wrong with the operation of the, the brain. Um, I, I think it's both a, a fantastically intellectually challenging subject and also one which is pretty much direct human um, relevance. Um, unlike some of the physics I tend to work on. <laughs> uh, why, why the brain? Like, uh, Well, it's um, the, uh, as, as far as we know, it's the most sophisticated um, kind of object which nature has developed. Um, it's uh, unclear to me whether the laws of physics um, and chemistry and so forth as we know them today are going to satisfactorily account for all the ways in which the brain works. My, uh, in fact, my instinct is they probably won't. It probably will involve at some stage developing a um, some kind of new approach to physics and chemistry, but of course we don't know until we really get into it. That's that, that, that's interesting that you wouldn't study uh, physics, for instance. Uh, I, I mean, even your undergrad, you didn't study physics; you just studied the the classics. Uh, that's correct. Right. Yes. Yeah, my you first undergrad degree was right. in classics. Yes. Do you think that's better in terms of like not directly chasing what you want, but like getting the context more than then working on what you want to be working on while doing that? Well, I would have to say that at the time when I signed up for the classics degree, I had no idea that I was going to end up in physics. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I would also say that I have absolutely no, no regrets um, about spending that four years doing the classics degree, which, uh, as you probably know, is not, is, not, um, is not simply classical languages and literature, but also ancient history, uh, ancient right. Greek and Roman. And uh, philosophy, and the philosophy is pretty much what you would uh, study if you were majoring in philosophy, say here at the University of Illinois. Um, uh, say, uh, had I gone directly into physics, in some sense, I would have been four years further on in my career. I probably might have published more papers, I got more citations, and so forth. Um, but uh, that's of no great concern to me. I think what I got for out of the classics degree was uh, much worth much more than that. How do you think of consciousness? Like you mentioned, you you would like to study the brain, and how do I, I would think... say because consciousness <laughs> is something consciousness? you cannot like quant quantize, right? Like it, you cannot well, compute. It's like currently at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it is. Uh, it's an important question even how you define right. consciousness. Um, I think most of us have a crude idea what we mean by saying that a, um, a, a another person is conscious or not, but that's a rather special <laughs> use of the term. 
um, one can raise the question, and I've heard it raised in various meetings and so forth, about uh, what kinds of animal might be said to possess consciousness. And the answer that I've, I've heard, uh, I mean, I think it's only a very preliminary one, but the answer I've heard so far is that um, it's most likely that consciousness would evolve in animals which are, um, uh, are very gregarious. Um, uh, I mean, elephants, for example, dolphins, um, uh, that, that sort of animals, rather than in, in those which are, uh, in some sense, solitary and a bit xenophobic. <laughs> That's an interesting idea, but I, I haven't explored it. Really. Yeah. What kind of things would you, you know, you live a quite a, a life that, you know, many people would say in, in, in terms of accomplishments, in terms of type of experiences you had, what do you wish you knew at our age, for instance? What, what do I wish that I... That you knew yes. at our age. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Um... <sighs> Um, probably various various things about human relations um, that one uh, should recognise when one can't, as it were, take a relationship any further and terminate it appropriately. Um, yeah, um, one should um, learn to value people. Of, um, whatever their relationship to you is, um, whether they say your boss or someone who's um, doing housework for you or um, fellow uh, fellow students, fellow colleagues, or whatever, just um, I'll treat them in the in the same way. I think. Um, I think it took me. I mean, I th I hope eventually I did learn that, but it took me some time. So I think I wish I'd I'd been a little more explicit about it. You're right. Do you, do you mind like elaborating or like explaining more in like how like I'm obviously like you're obviously coming from a place of like you experienced it at some point and you would like to have done better right so like what what happened like what like can you give some context and why you would say to build better relationships or how I think I'd rather not go into the details right, right. it's a bit too personal. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. No worries. Um, you know, an another thing that I'm that I'm I'm interested in is that um, so you you worked on this problem of uh, super fluidity. Yes. And uh, and you know it's been a while since you you worked on that, but um, what would it look uh, like? What kind of things could you do in a world where we're able to make these liquids in a you know at a great uh, scale? On a large scale. Um... What, what sort of things could we do? Um, well, uh, I think one thing one could uh, probably do, although there are easier ways to do it, um, are um, uh, to exploit the properties of superconductors in an everyday context. Right now, uh, oh, okay, um, I should explain. Um, until um, about uh, nine, until 1986, um, it was thought that superconductivity 
was a phenomenon which only occurred at very low temperatures. And therefore, um, to, um, to stabilise it and maintain it, you have to use um, liquid helium, um, and, uh, superfluid helium, in fact. Um, nowadays, we know that uh, superconductivity actually occurs under ambient conditions, uh, roughly atmospheric pressure and so forth. It occurs at quite high temperatures, at like half of room temperature. Um, and so there are other ways of getting it. We can, um, for example, um, we can use liquid nitrogen rather than liquid helium, and liquid nitrogen is not, not superfluid. So I don't actually think that there are too many things that you could do with, with vast amounts of, of superfluid helium, even if we had them, that you can't do more easily nowadays with, say, liquid nitrogen. And, uh, and then, so let's think, talk a little about those. Um, I don't know if you've seen um, demonstrations of superconducting levitation. Right. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. I've, I've done a few myself at the farmer's market. Um, and um, that, that can actually be done on a quite um, sort of human scale. I mean, when, when I do the demonstrations at the farmer's market, I'm de- uh, basically dealing with little, little magnets which are uh, maybe the size of a pea, something like that, and not, not terribly impressive. But, but in fact, uh, people who want to have a sort of box office um, um, impact uh, do uh, occasionally levitate people on, on, on large superconducting right. discs. Um, uh, so uh, I think almost certainly it's going to be possible to develop that further. And you can imagine a future um, in which, uh, for example, transport systems use that. If we can, um, uh, if we can manage to, to cool a uh, large enough uh, sample of superconductor, uh, superconducting cable, say, we could imagine suspending a, uh, a, a platform, uh, a sort of little, like, like a little walker, but suspended in, in the air, um, and use those to propel people around. Um, I think that could well, well become a reality in the next 50 years or so, perhaps. Right now, the, I mean, the, the, there's no objection in principle to doing it. The problem is simply that um, we just don't have enough of the high-temperature superconductors that we need. And it's expensive and not very profitable to make them. Hmm. I've seen like people do demonstrations of like the Back to the Future skateboard. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. The hoverboard, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. They, people yeah. usually use like superconductors just to like yeah, uh, uh, yeah. simulate that. Yeah, right. right. Yes, that's right. There's some nice, uh, um, uh, nice videos you can get on the internet. Yeah, that could be an interesting future where you can use when these materials get cheap enough and available enough that you can create a new type of uh, transportation. Yeah. So it's something to to look at, uh, to be looking as the future continues. Yeah, I mean, that's just one um, one possible application. I, I suspect there are going to be others, but we perhaps don't, uh, haven't thought of them yet. Are such like applications being worked on on campus? Are we, do we have a big enough group or? Um, as far as I know, there's no, uh, there's a lot of research on superconductivity right. in general. Um, the, uh, as far as I know, uh, we don't have any uh, research on um, 
sort of macrosco- uh, large, large-scale um, cable applications and so mm. forth. Um, I mean, there are, there are many other groups which uh, are working on that, um, uh, not just here in the US, but also in China and other places. I want to jump, you, we were talking about the brain, but I mean, yeah. I'm interested in how your brain works. So <laughs> let's say when you, when you were, when you work on your problems, when you would work on your problems, when you were in grad school, undergrad, and even after, when you were your post-doctorate, when you, when you were a professor, when you had a problem, what was the thought process? Like, you know, some people needed to understand it. Like, how would you, how do you approach problems? How do you decide what problems to work on? And what's the whole idea there? Okay. Well, how do I, well first of all, how do I decide what problems to work on? Um, I primarily look for um, cases where uh, there exists some experiment, or better, a set of experiments, um, which we apparently don't understand within the framework of the existing theory. And uh, then see... Um, uh, see whether I can um, work out how to understand them, either within the um, uh, within the existing uh, paradigm. Are you familiar with Thomas Kuhn's idea of uh, the ideas of paradigms and paradigm shifts? The um, uh, yeah, he he wrote a famous book on yeah, science. Yeah, 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 right. Please yeah, uh, explain. Yeah. Yes, yes, sure. Uh, so, so basically, the idea is that at any given time in the uh, in the history of, of a particular science, there will be a sort of general framework which governs the kind of of questions you're allowed to ask, um, the kinds of, of answers you're allowed to give to those questions in very general terms, and the sorts of evidence that you're allowed to adduce in favour of those answers. And this this uh, collection of ideas or prescriptions or whatever you want to call it is what Thomas Kuhn calls a paradigm. And, and uh, his, at least his original picture in the, his most famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was that um, within a, any given science, uh, you find that for a long period, a particular paradigm reigns, but then there may be a so-called scientific revolution um, in which the, the paradigm will change fairly violently. And then the kinds of questions that you're allowed to ask and the evidence you're allowed to reduce and so forth will, will have changed very considerably. Um, so, I'm sorry, my, my brain is indeed wandering a little. Um, how did we get on to this? This is because you... Uh, We're talking about what problems to, to choose. Yeah, 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 thank you, thank you. Um, so, um, ideally, I would like to try to find a... Um, a set of experiments which appear not to be explicable at all within the existing paradigm. And then obviously the hope would be that I would be, um, I and others would be the people who would motivate a paradigm shift, uh, a scientific revolution. Uh, and I did at one point in my career so think that I had such a, uh, I had found such a set of experiments. Uh, these were the um, nuclear magnetic resonance experiments on helium, uh, superfluid helium-3, from Cornell University in 1972-3. I was actually so struck by these experiments that I thought uh, that there really was a chance that it showed that the existing paradigm, which is essentially based, among other things, on quantum mechanics, was breaking down, and that uh, one might have to substitute something else for it under these very extreme conditions. 
Um, well, it didn't in fact turn out that way. It turned out that it was possible to explain the experiments within the existing paradigm, but it was still somewhat non-trivial to do so. And so that, that was a, a really worthwhile, I think, research project. And it's um, similar, though on a perhaps slightly, slightly smaller scale, with the, this, um, these questions I'm thinking about uh, nowadays in connection with strontium lithium. Again, we have a whole set of experiments which, within the, the sort of sub, if you like, the sub-paradigm um, which we've developed to, to deal with this kind of superconductor, things don't seem to be working, as it were. And so I'm trying to look for ways in which you might tweak or develop this to... Um, I, I, I don't seriously suspect that in this case it's, it will lead to the overthrow of anything particularly spectacular, but uh, it may nevertheless um, tell us that some of the assumptions we were making, uh, implicitly making, were not correct. So I think, I think whichever way it comes out, it may be quite interesting. So when you saw this experiment, the NMR, the nuclear magnetic resonance mm. experiments, you were blown away. But yeah. did you have a feeling that something interesting was going to happen, or did we just follow your curiosity to see whatever happened, happened? Like, well, what, yes, what I thought something interesting had to happen <laughs> in some sense, because it was, it was so clear um, that you're not going to be able to explain these within the uh, the uh, well um, within the existing, if you like, sub paradigm. Right. So another thing that you mentioned is it's uh, Thomas Kahn, uh, you know, like paradigm shifts, and you said that you you did it at one point. And how do you deal with the question of, you know, here's how science works and Let's say that you come up with a new theory that basically makes everything from the past wrong or not complete. So how do you deal with first? You have you know like the world's com it's compromised of humans. So you need to you need to convince the humans because even if you have the data, yeah. it's it's yeah. not enough. So you yeah. need to be able to tell a story to convince people. So how do you how do you do you have any thoughts on that or on how to? Well, yeah, that relates to another project on which I've been working for a long time. Uh, which is whether quantum mechanics fails when you get up to a level sufficiently close to the everyday world. Um, uh, so far it hasn't. Um, I, I, my particular specialty is trying to um, think of and analyse theoretically um, various types of experiment which you might do which are pushing in this direction. Now, I've already been told by one colleague who, whose background is not in, uh, as you, you know, I'm in condensed matter, so-called condensed matter physics, uh, the physics of, uh, among other things, everyday life, uh, and um, uh, not, not in, say, atomic or particle physics or cosmology. Um, one colleague who came from one of these other areas once told me very firmly that he would never accept any evidence for the breakdown of quantum mechanics, which came from the area of condensed matter physics. It's just too complicated, as it were, and there are too many things that would go wrong. Well, maybe, but uh, my, my, one of my um, pet projects has been trying to um, refine possible experiments in such a way that that kind of objection can't, can't be made. Um, so far, I'm, um, in my mind, if you like, slightly unfortunately, um, We've had no evidence that quantum mechanics is breaking down in this direction. It seems to be working fine, but who knows? 
So what's your intuition on how quantum mechanics uh, works or, or, or will there ever be uh, a, a connection with, with general relativity? You know, like Richard Feynman, for instance, um, it's known for saying, we'll never understand quantum mechanics. And, and if someone says they understand it, they probably don't. So do you have a, a general intuition on how quantum mechanics work? Well, okay, um, I do have the rather strong opinion that it doesn't spend, it doesn't pay off to spend too much of your time trying to understand or interpret quantum mechanics as it's currently formulated. Uh, there are plenty of people who spend their, their whole um, uh, working life doing just that. Uh, and I, I really don't think it's, it's um, a worthwhile use of one's time, simply because I'm, I'm fairly convinced that in a hundred or two hundred or five hundred years' time, people are not going to be believing that quantum mechanics is the whole truth. Now, um, of course, then the obvious question is, okay, what's going to replace it? But I think we're really in the position of um, that people might have been had they taken things seriously in 1876. Now, why do I say 1876? In 1876, um, what uh, mechanics, what what, what we now call classical mechanics, but right. they would just say mechanics. Mechanics was going um, strong. Um, seemed to be, um, uh, together with um, the electrodynamics of Maxwell and so on and so forth, it was, seemed to be explaining um, just about all the experiments that people could do. Um, but in 1876, Willard Gibbs um, came up with what is now known as the Gibbs Paradox. And this has to do with the, the um, behaviour of the entropy when you mix two species, of, uh, two, two volumes of identical gas. And there seemed to be some kind of uh, contradiction there. Now, Gibbs himself seemed to regard this as just a sort of minor accounting matter. But I think that if... People, with the virtue of hindsight, I think one can see, had people um, really taken that seriously, um, they would have had to come to the conclusion that um, mechanics, or as we would say classical mechanics, had to break down at some stage as you went from the everyday level to the level of single atoms and molecules and so forth. They would not have known... Uh, when it was going to break, break down, they'd certainly not know how it was going to break down, but that it was going to break down, they would have, could have known and should have known in some sense in retrospect. Of course, we now know that it did break down and it led to quantum mechanics. That, that, that would have been impossible for them to guess, but they'll say that something was going to go wrong. I think we're in the same position now with quantum mechanics. We don't know. We don't know when it's going to fail, we don't know how it's going to fail, but that it's going to fail, I think we know. Um, and that, that's why I think that one's efforts, rather than trying to, to find more and more sophisticated interpretations of quantum mechanics as we now know it, um, I prefer to spend more time uh, trying to devise experiments which may conceivably show it's, going to, it's not going to work. <laughs> That's true. Like I was, I was reading about it some time ago. Like, when we r run these experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, for example, 
we we hope that we observe something that we weren't expecting because yeah. that's more exciting than proving our theories right because we want to be surprised we want to we want to experience something that we thought did not exist and then we can focus on that and see why that happened oh yes like we would yeah. want our models to fail because oh, yeah. that's oh, yeah. Yeah. that's how we learn and like make better ones yes indeed yeah that's right yeah and I, the goal should be like you said not necessarily understand to understand everything about quantum mechanics because like you said in 100 years or 50 years or whoever however long it will it will it will fill in some way so therefore our efforts or at least part of our efforts should be focused on designing the experiment that would prove um that would make quantum mechanics you know quote unquote fail yeah but of course that will turn into your earlier question um if you have done that experiment and uh it seems to you uh, or it seems to me that that uh that you have shown that quantum mechanics fails how are you going to then persuade your colleagues right <laughs> um i mean it's almost certainly it won't be a matter of a year or even a few years it'll be a generation or a couple of generations um before that the community in general is um, likely to accept this has happened what do you think about the new kind of science that was proposed by Stephen Wolfram like 20 years ago well i'm sorry you don't have to fill me in on that <laughs> right so a new kind of science was basically like Stephen Wolfram he he wrote a book for like 10 years yeah and he compiled all of his thoughts in a book called a new kind of science yes which is basically about how everything in this universe is computational yeah. like every action every everything that's happening like even relativity quantum mechanics like yeah. the one thing that binds all of these theories together is the fact that they're all computational i don't believe that i don't believe that when an electron when i fire an electron say oh my calling fires an electron <laughs> through a young slits experiment i don't believe that that electron is doing a computation to decide where it has to go what do you think happens i think it just goes Yes, yes. No. I I'm um I I mean this may be a prejudice of Pobius on my part but uh, I I frankly think that the idea of computation both as a practical tool and as a in some sense in the in the sense that Wolfram tried to develop it as a sort of uh, conceptual primitive um I uh, frankly think that's overvalued So going back to the uh, to the question of like okay you found an experiment that would make quantum mechanics fail and you need to convince them. So let's say that happens to you tomorrow. Yes. How would you go about it? How would like, I go or, about it? Or like someone well, that you know oh, does it. How would you well, what exactly would you do? Well, okay. I mean, I think the most obvious thing that one would do is to get the experiment repeated by um various um uh, different groups. Um I mean in 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 the talk uh, in uh, the sort of popular talk that I give on this I raise this point and I say well you want it repeated by six different um groups working in six different countries and on six different latitudes funded by six different funding agencies and so forth and if they all come out with the same result then you may at least have a starting chance of convincing the general community but not until then so that's the first priority um the um second um of course the second line of defense which most people will take is 
Okay, so the experiments do seem to come out this way, and that's reliable, but but your interpretation of them is somehow wonky. Um, so, uh, and in in particular, in the case of uh, of trying to show that um, quantum mechanics is not working at the um, the scale of everyday life, say, um, uh, there are the um, the, the obvious ob objection is uh, to an experiment which tried to show that quantum mechanics is not working is the effects of decoherence. The, the idea that the environment um, is always trying to screw up your, the behaviour of your quantum mechanical system and that gets worse and worse as you go to, from microscopic to macroscopic. And so you've simply forgotten about some... Um, uh, uh, some part of the environment which is is giving rise to decoherence effects you, you hadn't worried about. And if you take those into account, uh, quantum mechanics will continue to be okay. And that's going to be rather hard to find, frankly. Um, it's, um, and I suspect it's going to be one of those cases where, you know, there's no, there's really no logical um, argument uh, you can give, which will be a hundred percent convincing. Um, you uh, be like uh, like special relativity, really. Um, if you think about what happened there, you see, um, people had for a couple of hundred years really believed in the uh, certainly in the nineteenth century they believed in the ether so as a right. means of propagating electromagnetic waves and so forth. Um, Along comes, well, along first of all, of course, comes Michael Morley, and then comes Einstein, um, and proposes a new way of looking at it. Um, lots of people never accepted that. Um, lots of people went to their deathbeds um, without ever accepting it. Um, in the end, and there were a whole string of objectors. I, I had actually had to review a book not so long ago, one of these rather, rather um, diligent um, scholastic efforts by a German PhD um, student in the history of science about the people who um, opposed Einstein, not just in 1905, not uh, not even just um, uh, up to 1918, but right through the 20s and 30s. And there's a fairly substantial group of people who did oppose him. <laughs> well, I guess you cynically you could say in the end they, they died off. And, uh, uh, you know, the new generation was uh, more prepared to uh, to receive Einstein's ideas, and I, I suspect strongly that's going to be the case with quantum mechanics if it does ever turn up, or with, most people think it turns out. For... Is there an idea that you hold currently that you think others will say no to, but you think is right and will get maybe proven right in the future? Um, yes, I, I think that the, um, the idea that in some way we don't, we can't even formulate, right, let alone understand right now, the idea that the future can affect the present, um, may turn out to have something in it. Mm. Um, one way I look at this goes something like this. You um, look at the really, really major revolutions in physics. Um, I guess all of them really involve the overthrow of something which, up to that point, had seemed just common sense. Right. 
uh, for example, I mean, it's common sense that the sun goes around the earth, and Copernicus told us otherwise. It's a, a common sense that um, the uh, time at which an event occurs should not depend on the motion of the observer, Einstein. It's common sense that the universe is static, a Hubble, etc., etc. Right. Um, in some sense, I think the one piece of common sense that has never been seriously challenged in these past revolutions in the history of physics is the idea that the past causes the present and the present causes the future, and not vice versa. Even to, even to really analyse what we mean by that statement is not trivial. Right. Let, let alone to, uh, to ask whether, whether it could in some sense be mistaken. <laughs> but I'm inclined to think that the, uh, if there is, and I, I think there is always going to be, a major revolution in physics um, sometime in the next 100, 200, certainly 500 years, um, I suspect it will have to do some, uh, uh, in some way or another with the idea of the so-called arrow of time. Mm. Have there been any observations or any anything that you've personally experienced which leads you to say that the future affects the present? Or what, what made you think that this would be a... Um, no. Uh, okay, you can, I can sort of interpret that question on various levels. Um, in, in the context of pure physics, no. Um, right. In the more more humanistic context, yes. sort of. Um, in some sense, the I don't think this is a particularly original idea, but the um, the significance of a particular fact involving human relations, say, um, may in some sense not always be defined at the time. It may. Um, uh, it may come to have a particular significance only in the light of what comes uh, comes later. So, not, not particularly novel idea, but um, it uh, but it it does lead me to think more generally that one should, in some sense, worry about whether that you can simply cut, as it were, even in physics, you can sort of cut things off at the present and and forget what comes later. As you probably know, I mean, there have been um, a, uh, there's been quite a lot of technical work um, in this uh, this general direction. In a sense, uh, I'm thinking particularly of the work of Yakira Aharonov and his, his collaborators, where um, they've um, emphasised the fact that um, you you can sometimes uh, define the state of a physical system not just by how it was prepared, but by how it was post-selected, that is, by what measurements were made on it later than the time you're considering. I mean, that goes a certain way in that direction, but it doesn't really, I think, uh, touch the, uh, the sort of fundamental uncertainty that I would like to explore. Do you have any thoughts on how time works or or, or, or what time and, and uh, I mean, no one knows, obviously, but if you had to guess, what is time? <laughs> I don't really think I, I, I could even attempt an answer to that um, question. As, as you know, that's been around for 2,000 years or more. So, <laughs> I mean, that's long precedes modern physics. So, um, so um, I mean, time is in some sense the, um, one of the ways in which we order our experiences. Um, 
it clearly in, in, in some ways resembles the spatial degree of freedom and in other ways is, is very different. I'm afraid really that's, that, that exhausts the, the profound thoughts I have on the subject. There's been some movies where, um, for instance, there's this movie called uh, Tenet, and basically this movie, they figure out a way to make entropy, you know, go back. You know, entropy is S, yeah, uh, yes. greater mm. or equal than, than zero, so you yeah. can never go back. It's always, it's always increasing. Uh, so they figure out a way to make entropy go back, and therefore they figure out, they figure out a way to time travel into the things. Again, you know, not an idea that is proven by science or anything like that, but do you think something like that will ever happen some way? Um, I think, well, first of all, I mean, the, uh, you have to be rather careful in interpreting the meaning of the second law of thermodynamics, the, the idea that entropy is always increasing. Um, the arguments to that effect mostly simply rely on the fact that um, you, um, you set as it were, initial conditions and not final conditions. Um, so if you somehow um, find a way of, of, as it were, setting final conditions, then of course the reverse would be the case, that entropy would appear to de decrease in time, for the, for the, basically by the same arguments as, as lead to the, the standard signal law. Right? Now I, I have played around vaguely with um, questions like the following. Um, suppose that I have a complicated system, say a, a um, cylinder full of gas or whatever, and what I do is the following. I assign, I, I partition the atoms into um, two groups. Uh, not, by, not spatially, I, I just random um, select uh, certain atoms to be in one group. And, uh, and I'm doing this all classically, because, because of quantum mechanics, I probably shouldn't do that. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I, I just partition them into two groups of equal size. And for one group, I set initial conditions, that is, I specify their positions and velocities at the uh, initial moment of time. For and, and I'd consider a given period from t, t sub i to t sub f, so t initial final times. For the other group, I specify their um, positions and coordinates at the final time. And then I, as it were, let them loose and see what happens. Um, I've sort of played around vaguely with this, but frankly not spent enough time on it to know whether there's any, anything interesting that will come out. I suspect the answer is yes, but as I say, it's not... Uh, I, uh, something um, that I, I would need a self-supported postdoc, really, I think, to work on. <laughs> Someone who doesn't need to get a job at the end of <laughs> Are there any thought experiments that you come back to? Like, if after all these years, some thought experiment that you, that was really influential in your work? Thought experiments. Right. Um, as distinct from, from real ones that have been. Right, so, uh, like, yeah. by thought experiment, I mean more like, for Einstein, for example, right? The, when he was figuring out relativity, one of the thought experiments he had was, if I were, if there was someone in a train, yeah. and like going and there was a lightning strike, yeah. the time at which the person in the train would see the lightning strike versus the time a person outside the train would see the lightning strike, would it be the same or different? Yes. Right? So yes. those kind of thought experiments led him to question what was understood as conventional science or physics and what made him like 
work on relativity. So were there any thought experiments that you have had? Well, I mean, there's the famous or infamous Schrodinger's cat right. thought experiment, um, uh, which um, <laughs> um, the idea being that, uh, as you know, that um, uh, quantum mechanics is a um, is a strictly linear theory, and if you try to tinker with that aspect of it, you really screw up the whole thing. So, so we we better if we're doing quantum mechanics, we better treat it as a linear theory, and then we can, of course, follow Schrödinger and imagine that you have a microscopic superposition, so a quantum superposition of two different trajectories of a, um, a single atom, right? which will, by a suitable amplification process, lead to two macroscopically different outcomes, in this case, cat dead and cat alive. And if you genuinely believe that the correct description of the, of the universe at the microscopic level is by that quantum superposition, and, uh, and that that should be interpreted, moreover, as saying that the atom is not doing one thing or the other, it's somehow doing both, then you're forced to the conclusion, same conclusion in the case of the cat. And yet, of course, we presume that if we were to do this experiment um, uh, with real cats, and with, when we take the lid off the box, each particular cat is going to be dead or alive. So, um, uh, so that thought experiment has bothered me for a long, long time, yes. And, uh, and was a large part of the motivation of, uh, for asking, are we sure that uh, the formalism of quantum mechanics is going to continue to be valid as we go from the microscopic to the macroscopic level? What would be the greatest discovery, science discovery? Period. Yeah, like if if you you know if you if you could you know ask a uh, like a genie or something, uh, what would be the greatest science discovery that could ever uh, that would <laughs> that would unlock a uh, a new step in, in in science, like a new era, a new revolution. Oh boy. Um, well, okay. I was asked a rather similar question um, on a more limited time scale um, uh, in a different context very recently, in fact. I was asked the question, um, what is going to be the most important scientific discovery of the next 25 years? Okay. And uh, I was one of the several people who was asked this question, and most of them had um, what I thought were rather conservative answers to this question, like, say, developing machine learning to a uh, right. much greater extent or whatever. So my answer was um, some of the phenomena which in 2022 we call psychic and think of uh, as most people think of, uh, as the product of uh, a sort of um, optical illusion or self-deception or whatever, or, or, or chicanery, um, some of those, uh, some at least of those phenomena, will turn out to be for real. In other words, people have done sufficiently controlled experiments, they convince the community that at least some of these phenomena, not necessarily all of them, are, are, are for real. And um, this, and what this would suggest, although it's not the only possible um, explanation, would be that um, you can have direct brain-to-brain -brain communication. In other words, the my hypothesis was that the, um, uh, the, uh, the 
this was only work, incidentally, between very carefully selected pairs of subjects, for example, um, identical twins at a particular uh, age, whatever. Mm. What would happen, crudely speaking, is that the um, omitting subject would emit um, directly from his or her brain a signal, an electromagnetic signal, uh, which would be strongly entangled, quantum entangled, so not, it wouldn't be distinguishable from noise by any normal, um, right. normal um, apparatus. This would then travel to um, be picked up by the receiving subject, um, whose brain, if, if she is indeed an identical twin, is sufficiently closely configured with the brain of the emitting one, that she could um, receive and, and register it, as it were. I think that's, uh, that's sort of fairly wild, but it's not totally out of the question. <laughs> Is this why you're interested in neuroscience? Like well, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that... Um, uh, I, I tend to think, um, if I can just um, go slightly off, off subject, uh, um, if, if I think, when I think about allegedly psychic phenomena, right. um, generally, you know, generically, I will tend to ask three questions. Um, question number one, um, if this phenomena were for real, would it violate the first law of thermodynamics? And if the answer is yes, then I say forget it. Question number two, if this phenomena were to turn out to be real, would it violate the second law of thermodynamics? If the answer is no, then I say, well, go ahead and study it. If the answer is yes, I'm a little more conflicted, actually, because I, um, I'm not entirely sure that we understand all the real ramifications of the second right. law or qualifications. Uh, question number three um, is the uh, does the um, phenomenon, the alleged phenomenon, have an explanation in terms of the physics we know today? Uh, I don't care really what the answer to that is. Uh, I'll go ahead and, and investigate it mm -hmm. because. Um, one example, um, which might relate to question three, for example, is water dividing. Um, I, I guess you know the, the general idea. Uh, the, it's certain subjects claim that they can take a particular kind of fork stick um, and walk over the ground in a certain area, and that the stick will twitch um, when they're above water. And this is being taken sort of at least semi-seriously by some quite respectable people and organisations. I mean, uh, for example, when um, the when British Rail, the British Rail system, wanted to build a line uh, through a certain part of the North Downs in Surrey, they realised that um, uh, that during World War One uh, there had been lots and lots of bunkers. Uh, hidden subterranean bunkers built there, but they didn't know, they didn't have the records, they didn't know where these were, and they actually did employ some uh, professional water diviners to walk over the ground and try to detect these. And of course that's not water, it's a, but, but it's, it's the same general principle. Um, so you ask yourself that, um, okay, that doesn't violate the first law of thermodynamics, it apparently doesn't violate the second law. On the other hand, it's not um, apparently excludable within any version of the physics we know today. I say go and always go ahead and investigate that. That's worth investigating, for sure. What's the reasoning why you use the first 
and the second law of thermodynamics, as well as the current physics? Like, what was the thought process behind asking those three questions? Oh, well, um, okay. I mean, I would think that the um, the first law of thermodynamics is as, as basic a, a, a feature of... Very fundamental. Yes. I mean, it goes way back to Newton, and, or probably beyond, in fact. Um, and uh, if we were to th uh, throw that out, I mean, it's conceivable we might have to throw that out, but that would really involve revising just about 100% of the physics we know. So, um, uh, uh, so I, I think that's um, a priori pretty improbable. We're going to have to do that. As I say, with the second law, um, as I say it's less clear cut. You have to uh, you have to specify rather carefully what you mean by the system, what you mean by the environment, how you're going to set the initial conditions, etc., etc. And it's only after you've done that that you can really make any uh, any firm claim, even within the context of contemporary physics. Interesting. Thank you for um, for explaining that. Uh, the The other thing I'm, I'm interested in is um, so. And that I would like to hear your thoughts is the, the following. Um, so how do you, how do you think of um, so Richard Hamming? It's someone that uh, is a mathematician. He graduated from here, a PhD, and he would go on. He worked he worked on Bell on Bell Labs. Um, so, so you say this is an actual person I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, Richard. Richard Hamming. So he, he worked at Bell Labs and he worked with uh, many interesting people like uh, Bardeen and, and Hamming and yeah. all these people. Yeah. And something he, he would do is that he would sit with people and he would ask, what are the important problems in the field and what problems are you working on? Yeah. Some people would, be, would get mad at him. Some people would be like, oh, yes, it's a good question. Thank you for, for telling me that. And, and with you, you keep, you keep bringing up the, the brain. Yeah. So why are you working on the brain? Why am I? Because I've uh, 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week. And um, uh, during my, uh, uh, my um, uh, career, of course, I was um, employed by physics departments and not by um, neurobiology departments. Now, why didn't I switch over? Because, well, part, partly because inertia, fair enough, but, but also partly because I had enough interesting things to do. And the, the time scale for doing those was um, rather shorter. I mean, I had I, um, I mean, I could have, in, in fact, at Sussex, when I was working at Sussex in the UK, um, I probably could have um, afforded to take 10 years off and train myself um, completely in neurobiology. A few of my colleagues actually did things which were somewhat similar. For example, one, uh, one of my colleagues became a full-time expert in development studies. Um, uh, and there were others uh, as well who um, trained as physicists and did something completely different. Um, I did it in a sort of minor way, in simply switching from my, um, uh, from my low temperature interests into um, the foundations of, of quantum mechanics. I mean, within the physics um, community, as it is currently constituted, that was a sort of fairly major switch. Right. Um, I didn't go further than that. Um, I could have. Um, who knows what would have happened? I mean, I might have made an interesting, some interesting discoveries in neurobiology. I, I might have just run into a brick wall. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't believe in counterfactuals anyway. So. Hmm. 
it, it's I find it really encouraging that even at this age you're still equally motivated to work on the problems and you're still like going to your labs and like doing your research and like what gets you what gets you motivated what what keeps you going oh, just curiosity, curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's some um, yeah it's a nice feeling when you, uh, you you find that you're you've been able to see a problem in a, in a way that up to now has not been no one has done mm. yeah was there anything that your parents did or, or something growing up that made you as curious as you are today uh, was there anything interesting that you, you think uh, because uh, you know generally every kid every child yes. it's curious but for some reason once they reach 15 20 they, yeah, they, 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 lose it. they can be suppressed yes <laughs> so how do we how can we cal cultivate more curiosity that throughout their life they can be that they, they can have that childlike curiosity do you have any thoughts <laughs> on, on, on that well you have to um First thing is you have to uh, evolve a social or educational or whatever pattern um, in which it's not a disaster to be wrong. Um, I mean, this is just, I think, a, um, a special case of a much more general um, situation that um, within the current setup, um, you know, the regarding academic uh, study, uh, education, research. Um, in some sense, you can't afford to be wrong because um, then your, your, your career will not flourish. Um, this seems to me a disaster, frankly. Um, and I, I was very fortunate when I um, became employed by the University of Sussex okay, that I didn't have that kind of constraint. I'd, uh, uh, effectively um, at a fairly early stage, in a very early physical age, in my early um, mid-twenties, mid-twenties I had uh, essentially got tenure. Um, didn't have to worry about um, my, uh, my promotion, I didn't have to worry about um, publishing a paper every year in Science or Nature or whatever. Um, and so it was much easier to um, uh, to, to take risks, um, I took a certain risk, of course, in uh, in um, just saying, you know, when the experiments on helium three came up, I'm, I'm not going to bother about reading the um, all the many books that have been written about nuclear magnetic resonance and so forth, because it's clear that this this just doesn't behave according to those books. Right. I can just go on and sort of start from scratch and think about it. Because uh, that was a risk, I, I could just uh, run into a brick wall. Um, but 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 if I had run into a brick wall, so what? You know, it, uh, I, I really find it's much worse today for people starting. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, you may think it's bad in the uh, here in the U.S. I can assure you, in China, it's about ten times as bad. Uh, you know, people have to continually think about. Um, no, not just where you know where they're going to, going to get a full professorship, not not where they're going to get, not how they're going to get tenure, not even how they're going to get to the right next postdoc, um, even how they're going to get into graduate school. at all you know, people seriously try to publish papers as undergraduates in in these so-called high-impact journals, um, and 
in, in order to get a little ahead in the competition to get into graduate school. It's terrible. It, um, because that kind of pressure, I mean, people still, you know, fortunately, there's still people who resist that and still manage to do good work under those circumstances. Right. But, but it's a huge drag, really. Um, it's almost guaranteed to, to result in a whole lot of people simply doing the kind of problems they know they can do within two or three years. That's not what scientific research ought to be at all. So how can we change that in places like <laughs> the US, like where we, we have the chance and the possibility of changing it? Yeah, well, that's the $64,000 question, I guess. Um, um, I mean, look, in, in some sense, this is the result of a, uh, a good uh, thing. The good thing is that um, the academic world is far more open um, today than it was, say, 50 years ago right. to people from all over the world and, and people from various backgrounds and so forth. That, of course, means the degree of competition is 10 times as good as great. So, I mean, I think... Um, the the only practical solution that I've ever been able to really suggest to someone who asks me what to do in this kind of situation is think seriously about not uh, I mean assuming you're you're interested you're you're vitally interested in physics say you want to to do physics as part of your career but you don't want to be under this continual pressure so. Um, one possible partial solution, at least, is to look for a job in a liberal arts college or small community college where your main job, that what you're being paid for, is teaching. This is how I interpreted my job at Sussex, basically, that I was paid to teach. Um, if I um, did my teaching conscientiously um, uh, throughout the week, I could go home on, fr on Friday evening and um, think that I earned my salary, honestly. And then over the weekend, <laughs> possibly, I could play around with the research problems I was interested in. This, the uh, employment at a small... Uh, I mean, I have no, no direct experience in this. I have to trust people who do. Um, but um, employment at a small uh, community or liberal arts college does to some extent fulfil that condition. And it's very interesting that um, it, when you look back on the history of the so-called um, quantum foundations or quantum information field. I mean, basically, in some sense, this goes back, well, selling quantum foundations, um, quantum information is perhaps a rather newer thing, but the uh, quantum foundations research goes way back to the 30s, basically. There's a long period, I would say, I don't know, probably from about 1935 through maybe 1985, something like that, in which uh, quantum foundations simply was not a respectable subject in any major research university in North America. In Europe, to some extent, it was still um, it was sort of respectable to do it, but not, not in North America. But um, there were people who kept the subject alive, and they were almost without exception. These were people who had deliberately made the choice uh, to, um, to to spend their careers in some kind of community college or liberal arts college. Um, I mean, you know, I could name half a dozen names of, of, of people who, who did this and are now well-known names in, in the field. Right? Um, mind you, of course, there are obviously constraints on that. It's easier to do it if you're a theorist. Um, but, but there are also experimentalists who, who manage to do that. And, 
um, it's getting less, e less easy because even the liberal arts colleges these days um, t tend to want you to publish in high-impact journals and so on and so forth, but at least the pressure is not not the same as it is uh, would be uh, in a place like, well, frankly, here. Did you enjoy working in the UK versus, like, you worked in both countries, so which... Well, I haven't worked in the UK seriously since I came across it, which was in 1983. Right. Yeah. Um, but you, you spent some time in Japan, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, uh, I, I enjoyed working in all, all those places, um, yes. What's something that you found to be different in terms of the environment and this, how maybe well, physics was done in different countries? Yeah, um, well, as I say, at least when I first got employed um, at the University of Sussex, uh, which was in 19, um, uh, 1967, I guess, um, uh, it was possible to, um, uh, to, to regard your main job as teaching. Um, and uh, to do research in your, your spare time, and I, I really took advantage of, of that. Um, so that was certainly something I, I enjoyed and profited from a lot. Unfortunately, even in the UK, it didn't actually last that long. Mm. Um, uh, nowadays they have all sorts of uh, research, um, performance ass assessments and so on and so forth, and, uh, and so the same kind of pressure is, is, mm. is largely there. I think it's still not as extreme as, as here, and certainly not as extreme as in China. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, it's, it's like this uh, this pressure, this this uh, this constant um, like race that people like younger people seem in that they need to publish papers, they need to do the right things, and there's no even there's no time or space to follow your curiosity and just follow where mm -hmm. this thing could could lead you, and this is it's a very very um, modern thing that has become a reality. And like for instance, like we're both uh, like engineering. Yeah. So in, I, I've realized that if, if you, funnily enough, like if you wanted to do engineering projects or things like this, you almost have to be a non-engineering major <laughs> to have the time. Yeah. Because if you actually are an engineering major, you'd be just in the library doing homework and tests. Yeah. 24-7. So. Perhaps there is something to be said in, in, in that sense, like perhaps not going to the best uh, quote-unquote college in the nation because mm -hmm. you have a lot of competition, everyone's trying to do the right thing. Perhaps it, it's better to not do the, the the engineering or physics major because, you know, they're always always busy or, or whatever. Because in a way, like what you want is leisure time to kind of let your mind wander yeah, and, and yeah. do that thing. I think ideally one should, um, I mean if you are at a place where uh, uh, where the pressure is high, you should try, and I know it's very difficult, but you should try to put aside some some fraction of your time, say 20% or whatever, um, uh, where you which you specifically devote to thinking about problems which uh, not only um, you think you may not be able to solve, but maybe no one can is going to be able to solve and uh, it is high risk but um, uh, but I think that's really the way that really valuable research tends to get done. We recently interviewed Bruce Byrne and he was a, a mathematician who wrote uh, basically the proofs of, uh, of Ramanujan. Oh yes, right, right, right. I know. And um, mm. after talking to him I got really interested and I started reading uh, the book on Ramanujan which is basically called the uh, 
the man who knew infinity. Yes, yes. yes. And in, in that book, I was I was reading that. So Ramanujan, he was very poor and everything, but uh, he because he was very talented, he found a scholarship to go to this university. Yes. And in the university, he only wanted to do mathematics. He he wanted he not he wanted nothing to do with English and the yeah. history and the literature. And well, after the first semester, after the first year, he got kicked out because he never showed up. He never did like, homework. <laughs> he was only doing mathematics. Yeah. And and you know he he did that once, and he came back to college a second time because he, someone gave him a scholarship, and the same thing yeah. happened. He he only did <laughs> mathematics. He refused to do everything else. Yeah. And what ended up happening is, is something that he said is that uh, he needed this leisure time yeah. to only do mathematics and let his mind felt his curiosity yeah. so I, I found that story very very much interesting because yeah. Yeah. that's after reading that I'm, I'm, I'm more cautious just preventing being busy all the time and just doing something and just yeah. more, okay like what are the things like you said like spending some time 20% of the time or just thinking about what would the work look like if this happened or yeah. just kind yeah. of solving this problem that yeah. perhaps yeah. cannot be solved today yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to do that. Yeah. 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 Which is like, you know, you need, you need to, it's not the, the inertia or like how things, like the, the easy ways, it's kind of like forgetting, like forgetting your curiosity and forgetting how you are naturally like and kind of getting lost in, in that way. Yeah. So it's a very interesting thing. What has been the most influential era of your life? Most influential era? Yeah. Um, well, I, um, I, I suppose um, the most, uh, and the, I don't know if it's called influential, but the, the critical, critical. Per, critical period was um, towards the end of my first undergraduate degree when uh, I decided to make or to try to make the switch into physics. Mm. And there were many barriers, and many people who helped me overcome those barriers. And had any one of them that not worked, I would not be doing physics today. Well, what were some barriers? So, well, okay, barriers. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm coming up to the end of a um, four-year uh, degree um, in the Oxford Greats, that's right. crudely classics. Um, and um, so I uh, decide I would like to have a complicated process of thought, which is itself <laughs> perhaps um, uh, quite interesting. I, I, uh, I decided that it was physics that I wanted to end up in. Um, so I'd have to do a second undergraduate degree right. in physics. Uh, problem number one, uh, is any university going to accept well, um, fortunately, um, I w- was at Oxford, and the, uh, there was a young um, young tutor in theoretical physics who they just employed actually at that point, David Green, um, and so he was the first port of call I um, uh, with whom I uh, approached to discuss this, and uh, he what he did was he sent me away. Um, for the summer, uh, this is the beginning of the summer vacation, and he sent me away for the vacation to read a few chapters of a really beautiful text, um, uh, not text, a beautiful book 
um, What is Mathematics by Courant and Robbins. I don't know if you know it, but it's a really beautiful book. I strongly recommend it. Um, and when I came back at the end of the vacation, he basically gave me a uh, sort of little examination on the content of the chapters I'd written and on the basis of my answers, um, uh, agreed that it, did, it was not complete nonsense for me to go on and try to do a degree in physics. So that was the, sometimes the academic barrier overcome. And had I not been accepted elsewhere, I could have gone on my, my original college, which was Basel. Hmm. Problem number two, who's going to support me? Right. <laughs> um, well, um, it turned out that there was another college in Oxford, Merton, Merton College, which had a scholarship um, uh, which was uh, usually given for um, for postgraduate work, but in my case they were prepared to tweak the um, conditions a little to make it available to, uh, to me to do a second undergraduate degree. Um, there's actually a complication there because um, the original scholarship um, had been uh, been based on a donation by an alumnus, and the the year of graduation of this alumnus was somewhere I think around 1850 or whatever, mm-hmm. when political correctness was not quite what it is today, <laughs> and so it was specified in the conditions for this um, uh, scholarship that the holder, uh, the recipient of the scholarship, should be um, an Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Well, to, um, I am half Irish, and um, I am certainly not a Protestant. I was brought up as a Catholic, so um, so very fortunately, of course. By, by we're talking now about nineteen nineteen fifty nine, and by by that time, of course, the college had realised that uh, this is not at least in the modern spirit, and so they'd actually made a nice arrangement by which, if um, uh, they could, they couldn't change the conditions of the uh, it was just sort of built in concrete. Right. So they said, well, you know, if uh, um, someone, uh, if we get a candidate uh, who we would like to accept and who uh, uh, who satisfies these uh, conditions, then we will accept him. Um, uh, uh, but if uh, and we'll, you know, use the money from this donation. If a, we get a candidate who would otherwise have been ex- accepted but doesn't fulfil these conditions, we'll just put our, up our own money to for him. Uh, and so that's what what they did for me. Incidentally, I think the original donor had never bothered to specify that the holder should be male, and therefore I suspect there are quite a few um, Anglo-Saxon Protestant women who now right. enjoy this. Uh, he'd probably be turning his grave, I imagine. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that was the uh, anyway that was the academic, um, uh, that was the the um, financial uh, uh, problem overcome. The third problem, the most serious, was the military draft. Um, oh. Um, Britain had the military draft um, during World War II and uh, continued it for some years thereafter. And uh, I had um, managed to defer um, being drafted in uh, when I first went up to Oxford in 1955. And that was quite a regular thing. People did, did defer their military service to, to do a first degree. Right. But now I'm coming up to the end of this first degree and I'm going to go to my military draft board and say, you guys, um, You've deferred me for four years, but I'd really rather like you to defer me for another two years um, so that I can do this second undergraduate degree. Um, well, it was known that 1959 was in fact the last year of the draft intake. 
So if I were to defer, then we don't do it at all. <laughs> so they're going to get pretty wise to that, and they're certainly going to turn me down. That's where General Sergei Korolev saved me. You probably certainly don't know who General Sergei Korolev is. Um, he, uh, to give you a clue, he um, spent most of his life anonymously to avoid being assassinated by the CIA. He was the um, as a um, uh, person who was in charge of the Soviet Union's um, space program uh, throughout the 40s and, and 50s. And so it was he and his team who launched Sputnik in uh, the fall of 1957. So, um, you have this thing going pop, 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 pop across the sky. Everyone in the world knows that this, um, uh, this spaceship is first, first ever um, Earth satellite, sorry, Earth satellite, first uh, ever Earth satellite has not been put up by the US or by the UK, it's been put up by the Soviet Union. All the pundits and politicians and journalists start crying out, how come the Soviet Union has got ahead of us in this incredibly important technological area? Well, the answer came back fairly quickly. It's because we've encouraged all our best and brightest to do useless things like classics and not useful things like physics. And so um, this huge sort of um, um, sociological wave, if you like, which um, uh, of um, encouragement of people to, uh, who were trained in the, um, on the humanities side uh, to, to switch to, um, to a scientific subject. And lots of scholarships and so forth became available for that. And I was able just to ride the crest of this wave. And most importantly, it meant that my tutors could go to the draft board and say, look, you guys, you, you want scientists, right? Well, here you've got someone who <laughs> wants to become a scientist. Much more useful to you doing a second degree than bashing the parade ground. So that's how I got out of you know, the military drop. Um, and so that, those were really the, the three main um, obstacles. But of course, then I had to um, compact things. I had to um, complete my undergraduate physics degree in a couple of years, rather than the standard three years without having any any real high school background for it. So, so that was a bit of a uh, gave me a bit of a mental indigestion to put it mildly. Mm. So, so how did this general uh, uh, save you, and and why does he want to? Why was he being persecuted? Sorry. The so, why why was the general in particular oh. like? How 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 did someone like the general help you? Getting, oh, well, from getting drafted. So I'm assuming there well, are other because, people too. Because had it not been for Sputnik, I almost certainly would have had to uh, to do my military service. Mm. And, and it was only that wave, that sort of sociological wave of, of, of opinion that people, you know, the bright, brightest people ought to be encouraged to do science and not... Right, so it was the military. indirect effect. Yeah, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. I, I thought... He did something for you, like, no, well, directly. Yeah. No, Why he doesn't you? know me personally. And yeah. person, but if I <laughs> ever get through the pearly gates, he's one of the first people I'm going to want to say. Got it. It was more like, you know, he, they, they launched Sputnik, and yeah. then everyone to be, needed to become scientists because of that. Okay. Right, and then there was, they started getting more important to the people who wanted to pursue science, and yeah, yeah, so yeah. they let you stay over okay. a little. Mm. It's pretty interesting. Wow. I mean, it's a series of events that... Fortunate events. One of them would have been... Cut yeah. off and a whole different life. Yeah, right. Any one of those things could have gone wrong. And many other minor things as well. Mm. 
it's fascinating. So besides that, those four events, which, which are probably one of the most fortunate times of your life, yeah. are there or were there yeah. any other times where you were lucky or, oh, yeah. or blessed or, or fortunate? Or? Definitely, yes. Um, the the uh, second fairly major point, um, th that um, in the early summer of 1972, I guess I always get the years wrong, but I think it's 1972, um, I, was, uh, I was working at the University of Sussex. I was working in, and I'd been doing some, some work in low temperature physics, but I had more or less, by that time, I'd got sufficiently interested in the foundations of quantum mechanics that I'd uh, more or less made a, the firm decision that I was going to abandon doing uh, just um, straight line low temperature physics. And, uh, and devote myself full-time to the foundations of quantum mechanics. Um, at that point, I went off for a week's, uh, ten days holiday climbing, rock climbing in Scotland. Um, while I was, um, a few days before I was due to return um, uh, to Sussex, I had, for some um, minor administrative reason that I don't recall, I had to make a phone call back to the University of Sussex. And whoever answered the phone, it would have been someone in the physics department, whoever answered the phone mentioned to me, after I got, got the sort of business I'd call about done, mentioned to me that um, Bob Richardson from Cornell um, was going to be visiting Sussex uh, in a few days' time and would like to, uh, if I were around, would like to talk to me. Uh, I had actually had some contact with Bob um, uh, and some work I'd been doing on, on a normal, normal state of, of helium-3. He'd actually done the, an experiment and I had done the theory and we'd done it, as it were, in ignorance of one another's work, but then found that they did mm. actually match up. So I had quite a sort of pleasant experience with him and I thought I would like to talk to him, but on the other hand I was enjoying my mm. my uh, climbing holiday. And, um, uh, so I when it came, when I had to make the decision, I, I think it's basically the toss of a coin, and probably it was raining that morning, so I decided, um, you know, it's pr uh, I probably wasn't going to get a lot more rock, rock climbing done. Why not just go back and meet Bob? Um, so I, I, I did, and that's when Bob told me um, about the, uh, the the NMR nuclear magnetic resonance experiments on uh, helium three and uh, got me thinking about them. And in some sense, I, got, I did get a head start on a lot of people because this was um, some weeks ahead of the actual publication of the, of the results of the experiment. And, uh, um, and that, of course, switched me uh, away again from the foundations of quantum mechanics into uh, firmly back into the temperature physics. And I didn't get back into the foundations of quantum mechanics until for another 10 years or so. So that was certainly another piece of serendipity. Mm. What advice would you have for young students like us who are motivated, who are looking to find ways to like, continue their curiosity and work on important problems? Well, uh, I mean, this is a sort of standard question that I, I've often got from, uh, you know, in press conferences and so forth, so I do have a sort of fairly standard answer, which I'll give you. Uh, um, uh, well, I think the first thing is, is, is whatever you, whatever else you do, do follow your, your curiosity. Um, don't, um, if something, if a question seems interesting to you and you don't understand what's going on, then don't worry too much if everyone else says that that's a, a silly question, if you know, if everyone knows how that works. 
Um, I always think about um, Einstein in this context. Uh, uh, for about 250 years before Einstein, um, everyone had known that um, all types of physical body, um, no matter whether you're talking about a stone or a feather or uh, a bird or whatever, uh, they will, um, in a vacuum they'll fall at the same rate. Um, Einstein asked why. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of his colleagues, I remember he was a uh, pretty junior at the time, um, I'm sure a lot of his colleagues say, yeah, that's a stupid question. I mean, everyone knows they just do. <laughs> but of course he pursued it, and eventually out of that came the general theory of relativity. Mm. Um, so as I say, don't be put off if, uh, if people think that the question you're asking is silly, follow it up and, and until you've, you're satisfied, don't drop it. The second thing I, uh, I advise people is um, don't worry too much about the existing. Um, uh, literature. Um, it's often better um, not to read the 200 odd um, papers which have been written on the topic, but rather to see whether you can think out a, a, an approach um, based on the general physics that you, you know. That's basically what I did with the Helium 3 business. I knew that there were large terms written on the subject of nuclear magnetic resonance. I also sort of knew in my gut they couldn't be right, or at least more precisely, they couldn't they couldn't apply to this experiment. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so I decided to start from basically from scratch and used rather general ideas which I'd picked up um, uh, uh, about some rules and things like that, and that did turn out to work eventually. Um, point three: um, don't worry about don't ever worry about having wasted your time. It, that is, if you've done a, well, let's say a theorist, okay? Um, if you're a theorist and you've tried to work on a certain problem and uh, it's gone nowhere, and you, you don't think, oh, well, the last three months were wasted. They weren't. Um, just just write up what you've done uh, fairly conscientiously and, and, and completely. Put it away in a drawer. And I would bet that 10 or 15 years down the road it's going to come, uh, come around and help you out in, in some to probably some totally different context. That's what happened to me, for example, when I was working in Japan. I did, um, uh, I did some work on uh, uh, so-called two-band superconductors. Um, it was thought, it was a brief period, when it was thought that Niobe was a two-band superconductor. So I did a, did a theory of some phenomenon which might, might occur in a two-band superconductor. And I, I got to the point where I actually wrote a couple of, of small articles on it. But then it turned out that they did another experiment and I was not a two-band superconductor. So I sort of thought, well, yeah, it's a waste of time. But I did write it up. I did write the articles. I put it away. And later, that was the key, in fact, to the more microscopic work that I did in the Helium 3 area. And fourthly, always try to, try to make life as simple as possible. Um, if you... Again, this is probably more for the theory people than experimentalists, but um, uh, uh, this is great. I found as a, uh, as a graduate student, and a lot of my contemporaries did, it was a huge temptation to learn up the most fancy um, theoretical methods and so forth, functional integrals and Green's functions, you know it. And, uh, and then to just automatically apply those to any problem you face. Well, I mean, maybe... You might even get somewhere doing that, 
But even if you get something out doing that, don't be content with that. Try and find a much simpler, more intuitive uh, way of looking at the the uh, problem. That'll be far more understanding than mm. grinding through all this, this complicated stuff. And then finally, and I think this is very important, um, uh, it's my, again, I've given you my standard speech on this topic, basically. Um, if you are, if you're going into to, um, academic life, uh, either as a, uh, a university teacher or as a uh, high school teacher, um, then um, whatever else you do, take your teaching at least as seriously as you do your research. Um, that will be not only good for you, uh, good, good, good for your students, it will also be good for you. Um, I would say that at least half of the, um, the, the good ideas I've had throughout my career have come at least indirectly out of the teaching I was doing. So remember, you're not just a, a, a researcher, you're also a teacher. Take that seriously. We have a... <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think that's, that's a very uh, like seeing that 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 like teaching not as a burden perhaps, but as a as a way to get ideas and bounce bounce yeah, of ideas yeah. of, of students, and especially people who have a limited um, understanding of the topics you may be teaching or talking about. Yes, and they may see it in a in a new way. Which, yes, which knowing what you know, you can take that and create something that has the, that that doesn't that didn't exist before. Yes, right. yes, I I always made a practice both at uh, Sussex and at at um, Illinois um, here to um, uh, to volunteer to teach courses uh, which were not in my specialist area mm. um, because I believe that by doing so um, if you have to um, if you have to look at the subject from scratch well you're in the same position as your students you 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 see all the difficulties they're likely to see which you won't but basically you've been doing the subject for 30 years so yeah. we have a section uh, that we call overrated or underrated so we give you a question or a topic and you tell us whether you think it's underrated or overrated okay sounds good okay, sure winning a Nobel Prize a you know a lot of people say that winning, winning a Nobel Prize uh, could become problematic because you become very famous you get invited to a lot of committees and you also have the add-on pressure that you need to work on these big problems and usually Important problems, important idea is start with little acorn. Yeah. So, winning an Nobel Prize, underrated or overrated? Um, probably overrated, I'd say. Hmm. Um, uh, um, but, but you have to remember, people do react to it in very, very different ways. I mean, some people, um, one of the things that happens, as you essentially said, is that you you get all sorts of invitations to uh, to go to meetings right. in nice places where you meet you might meet people in quite different walks of life. You might meet um, journalists, politicians, or whatever, whom you would not have done if you had not got the Nobel Prize. Uh, some people take that up and uh, and accept all these invitations. Um, other people, at the, at the other extreme, there are people I know who've got the Nobel Prize who have simply not allowed it to affect their lives at all. They've right. just gone on working in exactly the same way as they've been right. doing for the last 30 years or so. I'm sort of somewhere in between in the sense that I, um, I well, I used to get a lot of invitations to forgive purely physics talks or 
public outreach right. talks. I used to get a lot of those even before I got the prize. Uh, they've sort of doubled, I suppose, off. I've got it, and I do tend to accept those because I, I believe it is important to um, uh, to propagate uh, scientific ideas to the general public. But I don't usually accept the um, the invitations on Capri to make, meet with the politicians and journalists and so forth. Right, and the other argument is also that Nobel Prize, like winning a Nobel Prize, signals the end of your <laughs> project, right? Because it yeah. it means that you accomplish what you wanted to, like you. You've proven it, and the world acknowledges you for it. So it's it's kind of like the end of the project, which may or may not be true in some context. But that's another argument which also people make. Like, yeah, well, again, it depends a lot, of, a lot on the individual. Right. I mean, I think, uh, to be honest, I don't think I've done a huge amount of of. Uh, I mean, if I had to name the things I'm most proud of in my scientific career, most of them before 2003, which is the year that I got the prize, right. um, not after, but I don't think that has much to do with the prize, it just has to do with the fact that I'm getting older. Mm. Uh, had, it, uh, had I not got the prize, I'd probably, probably been the same. <laughs> <laughs> the next one, um, string theory, yeah. underrated or overrated? Um, well, okay, complete... Uh, this is a judgment of a complete ignoramus, really. I mean, I uh, have not seriously studied um, that, okay. that area at all, but, uh, but but from complete ignorance, overrated. Mm. So. There's also the competing theory of, like the quantum theory of gravity. Yeah. Like, gravi so what do you think of that theory as opposed to string theory? Because those are like yeah. on the other, they like try to like say, oh, no, I'm the fundamental theory, no. This yeah. Is the so. um, I mean, quite frankly, I've never been able to get all that interested in that right, controversy. Right. I think the reason I've never been, I mean, obviously in some sense it's intellectually very very fundamental, very fascinating, but there's very little you can actually do within the uh, the uh, the scope of one's ordinary life to, uh, to, um, uh, to which will make any impact on that. Mm. Um, uh, that's why I like condensed matter physics, because... If you have a new idea, the odds are you can tell, uh, ask your experimental colleagues to actually test it. And you know, right. I've done that several times in my in my career, and uh, that's very satisfying. I find and I wouldn't have got the same satisfaction out of uh, out of particle physics. That's true. The the next one, the University of Illinois. When you 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 got here, I think nineteen eighty three or around the area. Yes, yes, that age. Yes. Um, and after you know many years, many decades, I'm sure you got many invitations to go somewhere else and, and offers and things like that, but mm. you still decided to, to stay. Yeah. Uh, University of Illinois, overrated or underrated? Underrated, so probably. No, I think, uh, I think we have got a very good, uh, a, um, well, uh, we've got a spectacular department here, and that's, um, that's been maintained for many years. I mean, obviously, it's people like um, John Bodine and um, David Pines and so forth who really kicked it all off, but I think their, their tradition has been maintained. And one, one, of the, uh, one of the things, of course, we, we do always pride ourselves on rather strongly here is the close connection between theory and experiment. Um, and that's something I've always tried to maintain as best I can. I did... Um, I had a very, very nice, uh, very satisfying um, instance of this in the uh, early 90s when I um, managed to collaborate with Dalvin Harlingen, who um, uh, was an experimentalist, uh, to do an experiment on superconductors, which was quite impactful, I think. Um, and, and moreover, I think we have a very um, congenial um, 
well, I don't know about whether the university as a whole is congenial. Um, my wife, uh, at one point or another, uh, had, had some uh, uh, some business in other departments. I won't say which ones, but uh, I think her experience might have been a bit different. But I think uh, um, certainly in the physics department, we're very very congenial and supportive, mutually supportive atmosphere. Been a very 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 comfortable environment in which to work. Last one. Um, the title of a knighthood, getting knighthood. Oh, yeah. Underrated or overrated? Overrated. Overrated. <laughs> yeah. How was that experience for you? Well, okay. I, I mean, it's one of these, one of the many things um, that, uh, many traditions which the UK has right. kept up, which, which from a logical point of view, really, it doesn't fit in the con contemporary scene. Right. Um, I, uh, people get... Um, people's response to uh, to the offer of a night is uh, is obviously rather different. Some some decline it on principle because they um, uh, they don't believe in honours. And mm. um, I was rather tempted to decline it on the grounds that um, I mean I believe if you like in honours, but I think they should go to people who don't have other. Uh, uh, other w ways of being honoured, which I certainly do. So, but my family wanted me to get um, <laughs> get the knighthood, so I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, so, I mean, the ceremony is quite uh, is, is quite nice, and uh, all the traditional trappings and so on and so forth. And in my case, I did actually get to meet the Queen. I mean, that's not that's not automatic because nowadays oh, really? the odds are you're going to be knighted by a minor member of the royal family. Oh. Uh, um, but I, I was just lucky. I, I happened to be, to be on the day when the Queen was doing it, so, so I did exchange a few words with her. <laughs> um, what did you? What did you tell her, or what did she tell you? Uh, well, the first thing, um, uh, her, f her f first um, words to me arose out of the fact that she was um, she had to pin a uh, some kind of medal on the, the lapel of my jacket. Um, and uh, it, this is, it all been sort of fitted out by the assistants uh, beforehand, so that it should have been easy to do. But for some reason, um, it wasn't. She was fumbling with it, and her first words, words to me was, "I always have trouble with these things, you know." But <laughs> 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 then we just exchanged a few words. So uh, she, she, I mean, I, I suspect. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very sure she she has some kind of prompt, uh, you know. So I, yeah, yeah, um, uh, prompt. Um, but she um, uh, she asked me about my Nobel Prize, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and we just had a couple of sentences, basically. She had to do about 100 people that day. Oh, wow. Okay, so it, it, when it happens, it happens on a big yeah. scale. Most of those were not actually knighthoods. They were lesser uh, right. honours. But um, there were five, five of us, well, technically speaking, there were four knights and one dame in my group. Um, and I remember some of them. The, um, there was the chief rabbi of, of the UK. He got a knighthood. Um, there was the, um, a, a police chief, I think. Uh, there was a head, and there was a woman who was the head of what, a big London hospital, and she was the one who got, uh, got the dame, damehood, as it were. Yeah. Very, uh, very interesting, and, and something you would you would have never been able to uh, to predict. Uh, no. <laughs> Starting out when you were studying in London, <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to transfer to physics, <laughs> and and avoiding uh, being drafted. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Was there anything else that we didn't get to you know, talk about that you would like to mention or, or say? Well, uh, one part of my experience, which I suspect is not that common um, among people who've grown up in the developed world, is that I did spend a certain amount of time in the third world, um, uh, a certain amount of professional time, as it were, and, uh, in particular in Ghana, in West Africa. And, uh, uh, so that's somewhat unusual, and it only happened because we, at Sussex, we had a sort of exchange arrangement with a university in, in Ghana. But I think it was, was uh, for me, an interesting part of my experience. How do you think that that affected your worldview and perspective? Um, well, uh, I think um, it, uh, it affected it certainly affected my view of how the. Um, the developed world, meaning in my case the UK, should interact with the for their former colonies like Ghana. Um, uh, I mean, I think the the educational system in Ghana was um, based was more or less a carbon copy of the British version. And so when I was there, I obviously had to follow that, and I had to teach a standard syllabus in quantum mechanics, solid state physics, whatever. Um, that didn't really seem what was needed there. Um, in a country like Ghana, you, know, you have to remember Ghana is um, it's sort of, I don't know what you call it, it's a, uh, among what people normally think of as third world countries, it's sort of intermediate rank really. It's not among the very poorest, but also not among the, but it's not, not like say India or Brazil, um, nothing, nothing like that. So, so they're, from the point of view of technological development, they're sort of middle rank. There. And um, what, what what uh, serious, very seriously needed is many more people than currently are there with basic technical skills. Um, uh, really pretty basic. I mean, um, motor mechanics and uh, th things like that. When, we, um, when they held a... Um, uh, they held a... while I was there, uh, they held a... Um, a celebration for the 25th anniversary of the University of Science and Technology in Kumasi, which is where I was based. And um, so they decided, among other things, that they wanted to um, uh, to erect a flag, um, the university flag. Um, well, in uh, if you were doing this in, say, the UK or the US, I think the odds are that you would get the say the you go out to a local firm to get, to get the flag sewn, uh, and you would um, go out to um, some local um, uh, engineering firm to get the flagpole erected and so on and so forth. Um, that doesn't exist in Ghana. So, uh, so it was the, uh, the flag had to be sewn by the Department of Fine Arts at the university. The flagpole had to be erected by the engineering department. And there are lots of things like that. The, the university has to play a role that it doesn't have to play in, in uh, technologically developed countries. And so you, I think a, you really need a lot more people at a sort of very basic technological level. And it's, uh, the university has to be prepared to engage in training those, those people far more than it was doing, at least in my experience when I was there. Um, the uh, the and the courses. I, I mean, I think I'm, I was not the only one who came to this conclusion. There were other expatriates who been there much longer than I had who came to the same idea, and some of my Ghanaian colleagues also. Um, um, so you need much more sort of hands-on um, uh, courses. 
most of these kids, I, I actually volunteered um, uh, my second time out, out in Ghana. I volunteered to supervise the first year labs. Um, and I kept realise that these kids came from the villages around Kamasi, mostly not even from the city. What have they seen, as it were, in the way of technology during their, their um, uh, uh, high school um, training? So, um, basically, the most sophisticated, um, the most technologically sophisticated item of traditional Ghanaian technology is, is the handloom. And by Northeast Asian standards, the Ghanaian handlooms are pretty primitive, frankly. They go from there pretty much direct to the motor car. So the motor car to them is, is liable to be just a black box. And to many of my students it was. They had no, they didn't have the experience of um, just, uh, just playing around with all sorts of, um, not even a radio, but um, you know, things like, I don't know, can openers, well, can openers probably did have, but, um, but slightly more sophisticated kitchen tools and so forth. So, um, now, I mean, some of them, nevertheless, were very smart and managed to pick it up very quickly, but others really didn't. And you have to give them that kind of hands-on experience of um, playing around with mechanical things. And, uh, and some of my colleagues um, were actually quite, quite involved in trying to develop an alternative syllabus along those lines. And I think that was very... Interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, there's probably a much deeper um, political, sociological uh, lessons I could have learned, but I'm afraid I, I didn't because I was mostly focused on what I was doing. Yeah, yeah it, it's in, in a way like the universities would play a larger role that perhaps yeah. a country like the US would be yeah. specialized to perhaps. Yeah, absolutely, yes, the, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I wonder if that's still true and, and how you can do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Then before we end, we have uh, two audience members here. So um, I wonder if you guys have any questions or anything before we wrap it up. Uh, the example that you used for the African children and their uh, technolo technological experiences, do you think it's important to do public outreach for more theoretical topics, like your, your work in um, physics? for the general community? Um, yes, uh, I think it's important um, because it, um, uh, it gets across to the general public that scientists are not some sort of very special elite um, who are doing things that no one else can understand, that many of these ideas are things which, you know, given a certain amount of, um, of effort, and you, you really can um, understand. Um, unfortunately, I suspect that you're really pre mostly preaching to the choir. That is, that the people who tend to come to these public, um, uh, these public lectures and so forth are not the ones who really need the message. You want to get it across to the people who are really just sceptical of science as a, as a whole and they're not going to come to these things. So I don't know what you do about that. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. How would you recommend lay, lay people, um, people not in traditional academia, um, studying science, either as a hobby or wanting to maybe go into it professionally from an unorthodox angle? Well, I think, uh, I think the, obvious, um, um, the, the obvious way to go about at least starting that kind of process is by reading 
um, a lot of articles from, uh, say, Scientific American or the or physics, to, um, or at least somewhat higher level physics today, and so on and so forth. Um, that's basically the way I I I I, I approached it when I um, uh, when I had volunteered, well, I would say to do a course on general relativity and cosmology. Um, I knew nothing about the subject when I was starting out, so I. Uh, uh, I basically start. I quite literally started off with Scientific American and, uh, <laughs> and worked upwards from from there. And it sort of works. <laughs> um, but but I mean, there really are quite a lot of rather good um, d- discussions of these uh, fairly advanced topics um, in that kind of journal. And want you take advantage of it? Um, within that context, would you say textbooks and standard curriculum underrated or overrated? Uh, probably overrated, I think. Um, well, I don't know. It depends what you're talking about, really. Um, uh, I mean, if the subject is well established, like say classical mechanics, um, <laughs> there are very good texts. I, I would particularly uh, cite Goldstein, uh, Goldstein's book on, on classical mechanics. Um, you know, there's certain things which are well established, which no one seriously worries about, and um, uh, uh, so it is. Well, it is worth spending a certain amount of time working through those texts. I think when you're talking about a more rapidly evolving uh, subject, then perhaps it's um, it's better to um, uh, to spend your time looking at the uh, sort of physics today, scientific American type of literature. Um. As lay people, I think for as a lay person, um, I often find it difficult to figure out which papers or articles are um, the relevant, accurate, important ones to read. Um, the advice I've heard is look at the method and be really rigorous in seeing if this is actually a real replicable experiment. Um, besides that, what would you say is a good way to tell which you know which articles are maybe fact from fiction versus and also important or not important. Oh <laughs> well, uh, I would say if you enjoy it and, f- and feel that you uh, you can um, understand it and more un- moreover understand it at a sort of reasonable rate of reading, as it were, then it's probably something you should you should go ahead with. Um, if you find that it's, you're just getting too many symbols that you don't. Um, either the, the author only defined for 60 pages ago and so forth. It's probably not the thing to read. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for coming and okay. talking to us. Oh, it was, we had a lovely time. So <laughs> thank too. you so much. <laughs> thank, thank, you. You. thank you. And thank you for watching. I hope you had a fun time learning about thermodynamics, particle physics, consciousness and all the other topics that we talked about during this conversation. Um, One of the most inspiring things about this conversation for me personally was the fact that even after all these years and working on so many important problems, Sir Leggett is still equally committed to solving the problems that he wants to solve and is still continuing the research and still finding new problems to work on. And I would say the result and the the consequence of that is that he has just been following his curiosity and in the way, I think, inspiring many others to do the same. Having such conversations inspires people like us, especially to realize the importance of 
finding important problems and trying to work on them. And like you mentioned, um, trying to live a simple life. That's something that we forget in the way. And we always try to find the big, the most complicated or the most prom important problem that we think would be the work on. But sometimes the answer is simple. And um, just trying to find a way to reach to the bottom of that problem and just chasing that curiosity is the most simple way forward. So live a simple life, follow your curiosities, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.